0: Today, I'm really excited to speak with my guest, Lauren, who is very passionate about women in tech and STEM specifically. And it's an interesting thing for me. It drew me in when I was learning about your work, Lauren, because I'm kind of surprised that I didn't pursue more of a tech-related career. I've always been really interested in technology And I've also been very drawn to learning about women in STEM and fields in which women tend to be minorities. Women tend to not be taken as seriously. Women tend to struggle in these workplaces as we're going to explore today. And one thing that you and I were kind of bonding over before we started recording is gadgets, (laughs) And I thought it would be a fun place to start because I love meeting other people in general, but especially as I'm a woman, I feel like it's a delight to meet another female who is also very into tech and gadgets. And I know you have a background in engineering, so I'm curious to hear a little bit more about why you love gadgets and what type of gadgets you like the most. Do you have a favorite that comes to mind? Do you feel drawn to something in particular?
1: I guess, first off, I'm really happy to be here and excited for our conversation. I've always been a gadget fiend is how I describe it. I'm torn because it's almost like you're forced to choose whether you like the Amazon environment or the Google environment or the Apple environment. I'm kind of leaning more towards Apple at the minute because I've got an iPhone and I've got a MacBook and I do like my iPad and my iPhone and my laptop all sync together that I do enjoy.
0: <laughs> Me too.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but when I first started, well, not when I first started, when I was in the office that you had to have headsets. Everyone had a wired headset. And I was like, I want to be able to go make a coffee at the same time. So I wanted to get a Bluetooth headset so that I could walk around. (laughs) These little things, I just find them, it just makes life a little bit easier. That you can go get a printout and stuff. And I mean, I've seen people use their Bluetooth headsets and they go to the toilets and you're just like, please don't. I don't want that. (laughs) And this is all (laughs) (laughs) pre-COVID.
0: Right. Yeah it's it's interesting actually that brings up another thought I had mentioned to you before we started recording that I use a number of AI tools I'm very drawn into those right now and I spend a lot of time thinking about as well as tools like social media which don't quite fall into the gadget realm but there's a lot of gadgets that are based on social media there's new gadgets coming out that are based on AI I just saw one on Kickstarter yesterday and I thought whoa like this is the world that we're moving into, all these tools that are are helping us do things faster and differently. But there's also this question of, is our humanity being stripped away? Like To your point, are we getting to this time where we are so trying to be efficient and productive that we are using all these gadgets at the toilet? I mean, that's become a big thing ever since cell phones came out like people bring their cell phones to use while they're going to the bathroom. And I think most of us can relate to that desire because maybe it seems a little boring to just sit there and do nothing. But then <laughs> there's the other side of like do we spend enough time doing nothing? <laughs> I'm kind of curious about your thoughts given all the work that you've been doing in this field that you've been in.
1: I'm going to I'll probably quote my mom here cuz she always calls me a borg. When I go up and visit, because I've always got my phone or my iPad or laptop or something out. And she's like, how much of you is human now versus always using a gadget? I do think there is a time for, I mean, the, the word is digital detox, but I don't know. I don't think I go to that extreme. It's just a case of sometimes it's just turn your phone off. I've always had this rule that when I go to bed, I don't have my phone beside me. Because anytime I've been traveling and I do have my phone, because I usually use it for my alarm clock, I always end up scrolling. It's the first thing I pick up in the morning and that can't be healthy. (laughs) So it's always been a thing. I'll leave my phone in the living room, probably on charge or something like that. And then I go to bed in another room and just that's like my sacred place.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's important to have something that works well for us. I think not being too prescriptive about it or one-size-fits-all about it. Each of us need to determine our relationships with technology, and that's going to depend on a number of different factors. And I would love to go back a little bit to a definition of STEM because I didn't really understand what that meant, and I still could use some more clarity. I remember learning about it really focused, I guess, probably back in, I would say, 2016, I was invited to something that was related to women in STEM, and the definition was new to me. So I would love to hear how you define it for the listener who might also be a little unsure about what STEM means.
1: STEM, S-T-E-M, is science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Math if you're U.S., maths if you're U.K., and I graduated in 2006 with a degree in electronic and electrical engineering, and I was born in Aberdeen, and Aberdeen is very oil and gas focused, that you're an engineer, you live in Aberdeen, you go into the energy sector. It was almost an accident that I ended up in there. When I was at school, I really enjoyed coding, I was good at maths. And even my yearbook said Lauren wants to take over Microsoft, which was true. I did say that. <laughs> but then it was my tech studies teacher that when he was asking me what I was applying to do, I said, you know, I was thinking software development. He then said to me, do you want to go into an area where technology is always changing? This point was 2002. And he said versus the principles of engineering never change. And I was like, hmm so electronic and electrical specializing in computer engineering so I got the best of both worlds <laughs> and then about two years in I realized while I enjoyed doing coding and I quite liked programming microcontrollers for robots and stuff that was quite fun I wasn't gonna say as hardcore as some people were that I would see they were just really into it and they just could write things without looking up example code because I would look up examples and then say okay that does that so I'll just tweak it to what I needed it to be but these people could write them from scratch and I was like no that's not me I'm not wired like that (laughs) so yeah I enjoyed that side of things and then when I got into the workplace that's where things got really interesting and I mean I've worked for 18 years now so I've definitely have a perspective.
0: (laughs) Well that Is so valuable to have a perspective like that, especially in a time where I feel like it's kind of an interesting transitionary time. I think of it sometimes that we are transitioning, especially with gender in so many ways. Just in the past few years, I think our society has been looking at gender differently and being more open and accepting in some ways, although we still have a lot of controversies and opinions. But when we look at just The binary definitions of gender and male and female. We have come quite a long way just in my lifetime. I mean, when I look back to what it was like as a kid versus now, there's still so much that has changed. And one thing that you said, which was, I'm not wired for that. I'm curious to hear more about that because it seems like when I was growing up, it was rare, it was different for someone like me to. Understand how to use a computer as well as I always have been. I seem to have like a natural proclivity to it. But then I don't know if it was a nature versus nurture thing. My dad was really interested in computers. And so I was around them a lot as a kid. Nowadays, that's more standard. Devices are all over the place. But when I was growing up, like it was a major privilege to have a nice computer. More than one computer was not as common as it is today. Like a lot of those things have changed. And I think all different types of people now have access to tech in a way that they didn't before. So there is that nature versus nurture question, which is is it that the nurture side of it would be the fact that we have access to technology, we can learn it, it's around, we can feel really comfortable with it versus this idea of being wired for something, that nature, is it within our nature to be good at technology and other facets of STEM? What do you think about that? It's a really interesting question
1: because I kind of fell into engineering because I could do maths and I was living in a place where engineers were brought into oil and gas. It was quite a few years later that I remember sitting down with my dad And I said to him, if you take off all the fancy manager and director titles and all of that, at your core, you're a subsea engineer. And he said, yeah. And I went, and so am I. I was like, how did that happen? (laughs) (laughs) Because my dad used to be a diver in the North Sea. And then he ended up working for an operator and then worked there for 27 years. So literally went from being at the bottom of these platforms in the North Sea, welding and all of that, to then managing the divers and becoming a manager and then project director as as time went on but it was never something that I wanted to be and I always thought oil and gas was really boring Uh, (laughs) not something that you'd be like you know you're 15 years old going hey that's what I want to do when I grow up like I said Microsoft I thought was fun I remember hearing about this lady who I'm sure it was like the trackball or something that she invented and I probably need to look it up actually because I've always lived with this story (laughs) and she became a millionaire at 29 and I was like that's what I want to (laughs) do when you think about the gadgets and are people wired for it and so on I look back to when I was about six years old my mum got me doing keyboard lessons so playing the instrument the keyboard my older sister did as well and The thing I liked about the keyboard, especially, I can't remember how old I was when we got this new one, let's, for argument's sake, I was about 10 years old or something, and you could pre-record the different sounds you want out of it. So then as you're playing it, you just press a button and then it changed everything for you. And I always liked that. But I always say it's because at heart, I'm a lazy person. (laughs) It's so much easier just to click a button and it's done for you. It doesn't matter that it takes time to learn how to program it and find the right one in the first place. I'm just like, hey, you press a button. and (laughs) (laughs) So whenever I tell people, I'm a lazy person at heart. They never believe me, for one. And I'm like, it is so true. (laughs) I suppose a probably more politically correct way of saying it would be, I'm an efficient person. I just like to do things very efficiently.
0: I can relate to that. And this idea of efficiency has actually been really interesting for me over the last few years. I read a book that really shifted a lot the way that I think. And actually, the author Celeste Headley came on the podcast years ago, and her book is called Do Nothing. She was talking about this addiction to efficiency. And that framework was really interesting because, like you, I think a lot of us do tend to. Want to be lazy. (laughs) We want to do things quickly. We want to be productive. I think that's why it's so desirable to be productive. It feels really good. And yet we're also struggling with burnout and stress. So it's interesting how we have all these tools that seem to be saving us time, seem to be making things easier. And yet we're still burnt out, if not more so. And there's a big question now about why. Were struggling with this. It also reminds me of a reference in another book I read, which I can't remember which one it was, in which it mentioned how when the washer and dryer became commonplace in households, there was this idea that they were going to save so much time because you wouldn't have to hand wash, you wouldn't have to hand dry. But people just started doing more laundry. So it didn't actually end up saving them any more time. And a lot of these tools end up adding something new into our lives. Social media, again, going back to that, clearly a big challenge for people right now trying to figure out the role that social media and and other online tools play in our life. They kind of promise these things like connection and saving time, efficiency, and yet somehow we end up just spending a lot more time using them feeling a lot less efficient in other parts of our lives and actually feeling more disconnected and lonely. And so technology is really interesting in that sense, because it's not always what it seems to be to me. And I'm curious if, if that plays a role in, in the way that you think about things when you're engineering or when you're just using something.
1: I am absolutely guilty of just spending time scrolling, scrolling you know, LinkedIn, Instagram, Sometimes news, I'm curious about it, but even my news feed, I'm convinced my phone spies on me because I'll talk about something and then it just appears. And then I go down this, I just call it going down the rabbit hole. Because then it's like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I should think of buying that. And then you go and see the other things. And you basically just need to like wake yourself up and going, okay, what was I gonna do? Cause I've just wasted an hour of my evening. <laughs> so right now I'm in a place of finding. I'm, my sister likes to call it chewing gum for the brain. I don't get that sensation when I'm scrolling. I literally just feel like I'm wasting my life. <laughs> but I've started re watching old shows on Netflix. Like I managed to get through Gilmore Girls. And just earlier today, I finished Gossip Girl, all six seasons. The first one. I haven't watched the second one. <laughs> and I just enjoy it because I'm watching it, it's easy watching. And I find it really relaxing. And yeah, I mean, my sister said this to me years ago about chewing gum for the brain, but I'm like, it so is. I feel like for me, it's healthier than just endless scrolling.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. It goes back to that idea of there's no one size fits all way for us to use technology. And it requires a lot of self-awareness, kind of like what you were just saying, where you're aware that Watching a TV show is a very different experience than scrolling through social media. But it might be a similar feeling you know, releasing the dopamine and making you feel some sense of relaxation. So that awareness of what actually fulfills a need and makes us feel better versus what actually is making us feel worse and and drawing us into that rabbit hole that we don't really want to be in. Something else that came up as you were talking and going back to this idea of women in STEM and how times have changed and also connected TV show reference, a show that I have been really enjoying, at least at the time of this recording, which is in November, 2023, is called Lessons in Chemistry. And it's a television show that's based on a very popular book. Are you familiar with it, Lauren?
1: It's on my list. I haven't watched it yet, but
0: I keep seeing it and going, oh, Brie Larson's in that. I want to watch that. (laughs) She's really good, I think. And it's a beautifully done show. And I think it takes place... Gosh, I'm not very good at time periods, but I'm just going to say like the 50s. And it's interesting, again, to see like how it feels so dated, and yet that wasn't really that long ago. And a huge part of the story, without spoiling anything, is the character that Brie Larson plays is a scientist. And she is often confused as being a secretary because people aren't used to women being scientists. And there's this one scene where she asked one of the characters to name other female scientists, and the only one that he can name is Marie Curie. And she said, point in case, like you can't even think of other women. So you're having trouble understanding that I have all this knowledge and skills. And the show is basically constantly revealing how adept she is. And also, she has a natural tendency towards it. So going back to that part of the conversation, she's just naturally very good at it. She understands things. She thinks a certain way. She applied herself at school. She's very dedicated to all of this work. And you follow this journey that she goes on in in unexpected ways. And it's a really fascinating story. I mean, that's why I've gotten so into it but it really ties into your book, Lauren, and this idea of how women might not be super valued at work or taken seriously. And you see a lot of those moments in the TV show. And and I've started to read the book, so I see it in the book too. And it breaks my heart. And yet it also doesn't surprise me. And I'm curious, Lauren, Does your book touch upon that evolution, that journey and the transition time that we're in now in 2023, almost in 2024, how times are changing and how times are also kind of the same for women and other, I guess, also the non-binary gender side of things. Basically, how are things the same and how are things different for someone that isn't male in the STEM field?
1: (laughs) Wow, there's a lot that's the same, (laughs) if you're a man. Technology, of course, as we've talked about, has changed. There was something someone pointed out to me in the Barbie movie lately, where, it's not a massive spoiler, but there's a scene where Ken is in the real world, and he is talking to a businessman, and he said he mentioned the patriarchy. And then he said, "Oh, you don't have the patriarchy here." And then the guy said to him, "Oh, we're just a lot more smarter or quieter about it." And they probably said it words better than mine, but it was to that effect. <laughs> and when they told me that, I thought, "Oh, that's true," because it is still there. There is still Lauren's opinion, and on what I, based on what I've seen, the boys' club exists. The golf days still exist. When the guys go out for a drink after work, it's probably male-dominated. You may get some women there, but it generally will be the men. There is still, in a lot of places, this really macho approach. Sometimes it's really polished, but it's still there. <laughs> and then sometimes you get these women who think in order to progress, that's what they need to be like. And you see them not being themselves that they're deliberately trying to raise their voice they're trying to put other people down to position themselves better and you kind of look at it and you just think why are you doing that because it just I don't know if it's just I can tell when someone's really being themselves and when they're not and when they're really trying to do something when you become a good friend of mine I'll point it out to you There's a really good friend of mine now where I openly said to him recently, I, was, I didn't like you when I first met you. I said, because you used to try too hard. He literally used to run around the office. So it made him look really busy. And I was like, I used to just think you were a little weird doing that. And he said, I know. He said, I don't know why. I just felt like I had to keep proving myself. And this was a guy as well. And then I said, but you're much better now because you've just chilled out. You're a normal person. <laughs> And that's the thing. I honestly think normal people are much more valued than these ones who try to be something that they're not. Now, saying that, it is difficult for women in any STEM industry at the minute, science, tech, engineering, or maths. I mean, my experience in the energy sector, I've been there for 18 years. I honestly think one of my biggest challenges is people don't think I'm as old as I am. I'm going to be 40 next year. And someone said to me just the other week, they're like, the problem is you look 29. And I said, yeah, that's not helpful at work because people look at you and it's amazing how much admin stuff I've been asked to do over the years. I've been asked if I was a team assistant or a secretary and someone then starts telling you stuff that you already, and you're like, thank you very much. I've been doing this for 18 years. I know how to manage suppliers or how to negotiate a contract done it not just once or twice (laughs) but it's that bit where I've felt that I'd have to remind people but then I got to a point of why am I having to remind people and then you get stuck in this bit of a vicious circle of if you don't tell people they don't know but then if you have to keep telling people you get really tired of it all the time it's like why do I need to keep proving myself so Where I ended up getting to was making sure that I've built good relationships with people who are more senior, who when they say it, it's like their word is golden and everybody just listens and they use their political power, their social capital, all of that type of stuff. And that's what I like to speak to women about these days if they're in male-dominated environments, because I feel like I'm just rambling a little bit now, (laughs) So much of what drove me to write the book was I knew something wasn't right. And I thought, I want to use my voice. My partner, he had said to me for years, whenever I'd had a bad day at work, he'd say, don't worry, it's all good book material. And then last year, he said to me, are you ever going to write this book? And I went, well, I'll show you. <laughs> so what I wanted to do was to write something that just shows my perspective for women in STEM. But when I first started writing it, it was a bit like trying to write this essay for school. Here's what's going on in the world and blah, blah, blah. And where I got to was that there's far too much that is about women needing to be more confident or women needing to put themselves forward or using their voice or basically all the things that's wrong with the women. And I'm sitting there going, and this sounds terrible, but I'm like, well, there's nothing wrong with me. And I've had (laughs) had issues. I really did think the problem was me in so many times. But in the last few years, I was speaking to a lady who is maybe about seven or eight years older than me. And she said to me, Lauren, you sound just like me. Because I thought maybe I don't articulate myself properly. Maybe I need to do this. Maybe I need to do that. And I spoke to this really senior man and he was like, there's nothing wrong with your communication skills. I was like, okay, interesting. And then just after that, I spoke with a very good friend of mine who's about 10 years younger. So, And this was, again, it was a couple of years ago. So she was in her 20s. And she said to me, I was having an event one day. And I said, oh, it makes no difference if I come to work or not. And she said to me, Lauren, I know we're like very different levels and experience and so on. I said, I feel exactly the same. And I just went, no, when you are in your 20s, you are a sponge. You should be getting... All the experiences. You should being exposed to this job, this discipline, this way of working, all these different types of things. And I thought, that's crazy. And it was like that is what just sparked it for me, that I thought, no, it's happening to me is one thing. You kind of just go, "Oh, it's me, I'll just tolerate it. But when it happens to someone you care about, you're like, no, that's wrong. Then as time went on, I started thinking, it's not about the women. We need to get the men on board with this. So last year, when I heard Tim Cook from Apple saying we need more girls studying coding at school, I was just like, well, that's not going to do anything. (laughs) I'm being a little bit flippant because, okay, get more girls studying coding coming in. But you can have the most confident and competent women being brought into these companies. And if they're not being included or they're being treated like crap, they're just going to walk out the door. Or... If they need to keep their jobs, they're going to stay there and they're just going to be soul destroyed. Because it's horrible sitting there knowing that you have so much more to offer and people just put you in this box of, no, you can do the admin or you can book the meeting rooms or you can proof check something without actually using the real value and skill that they add.
0: That's so wonderful to hear that journey. And I'm so glad you rambled because I really enjoyed listening to this evolution and the reasoning behind it all. And it's so important. I think most people can relate to being put in a box regardless of gender, but there's certainly been all sorts of ways in which people have been marginalized and put into boxes. And given that it's so relatable, it's interesting that it's also so still accepted for people to be put into box based on their identity. And I think that that's really at the heart of a lot of what you're talking about is oftentimes we maybe can accept to some extent ourselves being put in the box. I I love that you made that point because it's easy to say, well, I'm not good enough, so I deserve this, or I'm not ready yet, so I deserve this. I'm not worthy of it. And yet when we look outside of ourselves and see someone else being put in that same box, it can feel unacceptable. I'm so glad that you mentioned that and that you use that to propel yourself towards writing a book to get the word out about that. I'm curious how people have been responding to your book, the feedback you've been getting. Is this something that is resonating in the way that you had hoped it to so far?
1: I mean, it's been out for just over a month now. And there's been a lot of women reading it who have then come back to me and they're like, oh, my God, that happened to me. Or it's just like my experience. I mean, not so every story that is in the book is real and has happened. They didn't all happen to me. (laughs) I did. I put a post out on LinkedIn asking women in STEM careers, please come and share your stories with me. And LinkedIn delivered. (laughs) So I interviewed them. And there was even a guy who does this for a living about male allyship. So I interviewed him because what I've also found is there are a few men that I know that work in this space. And when they go in and speak in an organization, the message lands very differently than if it was a woman that were to talk about it. And I caught onto that pretty quickly. But then now I find it really interesting to talk to these guys and say, so what stories have they told you? I've always been a lover of stories. Everybody's got them. <laughs> and just finding out about people's experiences, what is it that they've done? Someone told me recently that, and it's a little bit concerning, they're saying the new generation coming into the workplace, they think there's been too big of a focus on DE&I. So sort to of listen to it and I think okay you could take that in a few ways it could be that they think it shouldn't matter so therefore why is there such a big focus on it and I do get the point about it shouldn't matter because it shouldn't <laughs> but there we're just all kind of programmed from so young about differences in the world and I make it down, make it down really simple of you're like me, so I like you, or you're not like me, so I don't like you. I really do think that's what happens unconsciously for many, but I'm pretty sure it's conscious for some people. <laughs> and so there's an element there that I just think it does worry me around how things are going in the world. I was on this other show a couple of weeks ago, and it was very focused. The guy was being quite, provocative, saying, you know, women shouldn't be at work because men can't be themselves. They have to speak differently when women are around. And I just thought, that's the problem, that there are people that think that. The way I described it to him was, I mean, he was using language that I didn't quite like. I'll tell you what he said. He said, so how would you feel if a guy was saying, oh, I slept with this slut last night? And I just said to him, I said, I wouldn't feel comfortable with that. But where I got to with him was I said, well, think about how you would speak to your grandparents. Would you say that language in front of them? Because for me, it's just about respect for people around you and respect for your fellow human beings. So it's not a, that's not a
0: gender thing. That's a human being thing. That's such a important point. And it's really interesting. I think there's value in hearing the things that people say that I can't imagine myself ever saying, <laughs> but it's important to hear these perspectives to understand where these biases are coming from how they're being developed and i think that idea of the patriarchy is so important because it's very similar to some some things i was reading about capitalism recently it's just deeply embedded into us from the moment we're born you know we come into a society and this is just the way things are and as we can do our best to develop our own ways of thinking and become educated, we're still fighting against forces that are there and very powerful. And it's not just as easy as saying, oh, I'm not going to participate in that. And I think the people that are not marginalized, the people that tend to be in power they don't often need to change the way that they're thinking and change their perspectives because it benefits them to stay within those systems. And certainly this is something I can even relate to being a white person and now having to really examine what does it mean to be white and what don't I know. My ignorance that I've had due to my privilege requires me to spend a lot of time intentionally looking at other people's experiences and how I've contributed to things, sometimes unknowingly, but that doesn't mean that I haven't contributed to them. Something else you said reminded me of this wonderful book I read and have actually reread and probably will read again because there's so much to learn from it. It's called Inclusion on Purpose. Are you familiar with this, Lauren?
1: I've heard of it. I haven't read it, but I've heard of that book.
0: (laughs) It's a beautiful compliment to the work that you're doing because It's not just about women at the workplace, but it's about women of color in the workplace and the struggles that they face. And it provides a lot of really great information and tips, strategies for people. And that's why I've read it multiple times just to, A, open my eyes to what's going on for not just women, but women of color, as well as understanding how someone in a position of privilege can actually be an ally, like you were mentioning, too. And the amount of discrimination that can happen often goes, is kind of not talked about because it's so uncomfortable. And people just want to brush it aside. And maybe they think, oh, this is only happening to me. I'm not going to tell anyone about it. Maybe it's my fault. Again, going back to that mentality that you identify within yourself, it's like, oh, this is about me. This isn't about a problem. But it takes people speaking out about. Their challenges, their experiences, in order to reveal what might be going on for many people that are also afraid of it. And so it's, it feels really scary and overwhelming at times, but I'm so grateful for someone like you who's doing that work to put it out there and to talk about things like the respect just being a basic human <laughs> interaction, not a gender issue or not an issue of any other form of identity.
1: I find that. I know when people start talking about diversity and inclusion that people start eye rolling and so on. And I've been playing with this messaging lately where it was really digging deep going, why am I doing all of this? What is it that I actually want? And where I got to was the goal is not diversity. And this will sound controversial, but if you go with me for a minute, the goal is everybody getting opportunities to succeed. And everybody getting opportunities to be the best that they want to be. And that bit's key. It's about their choice in this. So if a woman wants to stay home, raise a family, fantastic. If a woman wants to become the next CEO, fantastic. And I say women, but I could be meaning anybody from any demographic here. That's the bit that's important to me. Because There have been multiple times in my career and with other women who I speak to where they have felt they've either had a situation occur or they haven't been able to progress or they've been offered a deputy role instead of the actual role, which never existed before when a man was doing it. But when when they're trying to do it, and even worse when they're a woman of color, They get given the deputy role because they have to prove themselves and demonstrate it first. I imagine a world where that doesn't happen and people get stretched opportunities, but in a place where if they are to fail, they will have support around them, you know, psychologically safe environment, all of this stuff that I do think a lot, I'm not going to say all women, but. I do think women do bring more empathy to the table and much more feminine characteristics. But that mixed with the masculine traits of pushing forward for a goal, trying to achieve it, mix the two together, and you have a really great recipe there. And that's the bit that I push for. So I call diversity, equity, inclusion, all of that, it's an enabler to get to the state where It doesn't matter your ethnicity, sexuality, gender, neurodiverse ability. (laughs) None of that actually matters because every single person is unique. Every single person has their own value that they are going to add. And if we start saying, okay, the problem is the men, it's the men. They go, no, 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 well, it's the white men. Well, it's the straight white men. Well, it's the straight white men who don't have any disabilities. And they aren't neurodiverse. And you start getting this really specific thing. And then you're going to find lots of examples where there's not people like that. And then you can go, well, actually, there's a woman over there and she's an a-. <laughs> It's not the demographic that makes a person a good person or a bad person. <laughs> so for me, it's so much more about workplace culture. It's so much more about understanding people. And getting to know people, I think that's the bit that's just underrated lately. Leaders really getting to know people in their organization and not just those who report to them. And then the way that I got into it in the book was because really, I want men to read the book. (laughs) And so I created these two male characters. So there's Steve, who works for a tech company. He works direct for the CEO, and he's very traditional. He's probably in his mid-50s, and he's always had a position of privilege in his career. Just didn't know it. (laughs) He's noticed that women are leaving the organization. He doesn't know why, but they're losing clients and being told that they're not innovative enough. And then you get Marcus, who is a senior leader in an energy company, and he has a six-year-old daughter called Isabella. And she likes playing with Lego, not the traditionally girly dollies or anything like that. She likes the robots, all that type of stuff. And he wants her to have every opportunity available to her when she grows up. So the two of them meet at the beginning of the book at an award ceremony for women in STEM. And they hear the stats that it's less than 26% of the STEM industry are populated by women They hear some examples of how women feel when they're at work and how they're treated. And they agree to do quarterly reciprocal mentoring, where they're going to learn from each other about how they can improve things in their respective organizations. So you get to see as a fly on the wall, the different approaches. What does it mean when someone, even though they don't say it, but they're focusing on ticking boxes? have we done that? Have we recruited the right people? Have we? Or are they actually getting to know their people and understanding that different people need different things in order to be successful? And once a quarter, that's the different parts of the book, they come together and they discuss it. And as the reader, you get to see their conversation, as well as the conversation that the respective conversations that they have with women either inside their organizations or outside. So it was really fun actually writing that because I can picture them because I've just been around the people like them for so... You know who are the Steves in the organization. A friend of mine, she lives in New York. She said to me, everybody knows Steve. (laughs) But you really want everybody to know a Marcus. Everybody needs a Marcus in their life.
0: (laughs) I love that you framed it that way because it sounds really delightful. And it does sound incredibly necessary. Where my mind went was, how do we get the Steves to read a book like this? And this is a question I often face. And one of the reasons I love having people like you on the show is just to to help spread the word and introduce people like you to all different types of listeners that are tuning in because the marketing side of it is such a big part of this. And it feels tricky at times. Like, if you have something that's addressing a systemic issue, how do you get the people in the place of privilege and power to pay attention enough to really understand it versus to just go to the checklist because that's easier? And the reason I ask that is it's hard to acknowledge that you've been part of the problem. It's hard to face up to this unless you really feel motivated to for some reason or not. So I'm curious Lauren like how do you approach this? Is this a matter of somebody gifting your book to a Steve in their office, placing it on Steve's desk? <laughs> or or how do you encourage someone like Steve to take the initiative to pick up and read a book like yours on his own? I think that's the holy grail at the minute. <laughs> so
1: far when I've been speaking with women about it, I've been saying to them if you enjoy it, go and give it to a man in your life. The only ones that I know who, either if they're friends of mine, picked it up and read it, but otherwise it's really been about when I've been speaking about it, I almost feel like everybody should know this by now, but that diverse teams are more profitable for the business. There was a study done. Apparently it's true. And like we talked about earlier, everybody bringing their unique perspective in there. We've got some real problems in the world at the minute. If you only have one demographic trying to solve it, you're probably not going to get on as well as if you have many more. And that, for me, like I say, I feel like everybody should know that by now. (laughs) What I don't know is exactly how to get the men tuned into it. I'm trying to post on LinkedIn. When I had my book launch a few weeks ago, I got some men and women doing some recordings. So I'll be playing those. Because again, I wonder if it is someone like me saying it, would they be more likely to listen? So I think that there's definitely some psychology required in all of this. <laughs> I mean, I know myself. Well, I'll tell the story that my mum said to me. She said to me, if you imagine Steve walking into a room, like in the office or something, or a conference room, what do you think happens? And I said, everybody gravitates towards him. And she said, of course I do, because they want a bit of the limelight. They want a bit of the spotlight. They want him to see them, recognize them, and so on. And she said, where do you see Marcus? And I said, Marcus is at the back of the coffee machine. He's making himself a coffee, and he's talking to the guy beside him or the lady beside him because he's a lot less all about him. He is much more – he's happy to just sit on the sidelines and watch, and he is still a good leader. You don't need to be the person under the spotlight to be the good leader. And that's the bit that I do think leadership is changing. I think it used to be so much more command and control than it is today. But in STEM, especially, I think it's still in that command and control environment more than servant leadership. Even people don't even like the term servant leadership. They're like, I'm not a servant. (laughs) So I don't know. I think there's some language that. You know, needs to be in there because when words just turn people off, you're not going to win,
0: <laughs> and that's another reason why we need diversity is different ways of saying things, different approaches to things, experimenting, really coming down to the core of what makes your team thrive. And it's always fascinating to me, all the different forms of leadership outside of this podcast. I work as a freelance consultant, I'm often exposed to a variety of different teams, and they're always different from one another. And I tend to notice the extremes, like when a team is really well run and everyone's communicating and supportive and happy, and there's all these different initiatives to nourish the team members versus the people who run teams. And they don't have that awareness of even how to tune into each other's humanity. It's like just that focus on go, 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 do, 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 get the job done. And let's not acknowledge that we're human beings to one another. Actually, I worked at Apple at the Apple store for six years. And I'm kind of curious on your thoughts of them and their leadership since you mentioned Tim Cook. When I worked there, it fluctuates a lot. We went through a recession during the time that I was at the store. And and that was really interesting, just how the change in finances shifted the culture at work. I was there when Steve Jobs passed away. So there was the shift in which you know, the person known for running Apple and the, the notoriety and, and the presence that he had, the shift that went on there and the changes that happened when Tim Cook took over. And through it all, though... Apple has maintained a feeling within me of a company that really felt committed to acknowledging the humanity within their employees. And I have noticed that time and time again when I walk into an Apple store versus when I go into most other retail stores and that leadership is very prevalent in the differences the difference of a company that has maintained values for many years beyond since I even worked there they continue to grow from my opinion and that is noticeable each of us can notice this when we're any sort of team setting even if it's not a professional setting we can notice this in the group that we're in who's leading the group who's organizing it i mean we have these opportunities in many different parts of our lives And I think one thing I'm really grateful that you have touched upon so much today, Lauren, is really acknowledging that it's not about our differences, because our differences do not define us. It's about, well, my interpretation, correct me if I'm wrong, Lauren, but it's about our similarities and our similarities as being human beings who want to feel like we have a purpose, who want to be successful who want to be acknowledged, validated, feel like we're part of something important. Am I getting that right?
1: (laughs) That's exactly it. I have a very good friend of mine, and he is a straight white man. And I've got to say, I hate the phrase, pale, male, and stale, because I'm like, that's such a horrible phrase. And someone said it on a stage yesterday, and I'm just like, but you're- I've never heard that before. (laughs) (laughs) They say it and I just, I know what they're getting at. But it's like I said earlier, you're creating this ring around a certain demographic. But even within that, you will have lots of different types of people. So my friend, he is a straight white man. He has a family. He's got two kids. He's an engineer like me. He's a project manager like me. And he has had times in his career where he has struggled where someone has made a comment to him that he's too young to have the visibility that he has or that um, he gets put in a role because they tell him oh yeah you're really good we'll put you in here and then when the actual person they want becomes available they replace him and so I empathize with it because that type of thing has happened to me (laughs) it happens to a lot of women that I know about and people of color or people who were English isn't their first language and so on but when people say to me, it doesn't happen to the white man, I go, yes, it does. Because I, I know a person where it has happened to them. Now, I'm really glad that he shared that with me, because then I can I can spread the word. Look, it does happen. It probably doesn't happen as often as it does to people who are different from underrecognized backgrounds and so on. But that's not to say that it doesn't happen full stop. There was a lady who was commenting on one of my LinkedIn posts a few months ago. Again, it was about the Barbie movie. I said the Kens deserved a better ending because basically Barbie just took over at the end of it. Again, I just kind of felt that there could have been a more a better balance. And she was just completely opposite side of the spectrum where she said, no, men need to know their place. Women need to take over. And so she's not the first person that said that to me. I've had some men that have said, men need to realize they need to step aside. And I'm listening to it going, one, is that even realistic? You're putting something out there and you're going to tell every man in the world to go give up their position of power. They could be the primary breadwinners in their family. Are you telling me you just expect them just to step aside? Because I don't. (laughs) What I do hope is that The men who are in a position of privilege or have power or authority or anything like that, they use it to shine a light on what's happening in their organization. I mean, can you imagine getting these CEOs, if they had reverse mentoring relationships with people really junior in the company, how cool would that be to say, hey, I get to go to a board meeting? or they bring a few of them together and then say to them right you heard what the board said what would you do i mean these are fantastic opportunities and then not only do you get new ideas coming in but the ceo gets to learn so much from them cuz you build that relationship and i would say you don't just need to be the ceo to do that you could do that at so many levels within an organization and I know it's not for everybody and everybody's wired differently, but there's a lot of people that would really love those opportunities. Getting a picture with the CFO or someone or like a president of a country comes to meet them or something like that and they get an opportunity to be there. I just see there's far too many pictures and all that where you just see the senior leadership team and so on. And it's like, come on, guys, there's so many companies in the world, you could do more you could brighten people's days with that.
0: It's so true. And it's such a important point, going back to this idea of opportunity and humanity there of like, what do people really want? You know, they want to feel that purpose. And they also want to have their days brightened because there's so much stress and people often feel so discouraged. And there's a lot of challenges happening in the world that can feel incredibly depressing to witness. And to just have a moment like that where someone feels valued at work, the title of your book, (laughs) goes an incredibly long way. And it also goes back to what you're pointing out about diversity being really good for business. I mean, I've seen those statistics as well. And is really interesting. I think there was a number, I remember related to like something by 2060, just the shifts in which our world is going through. And even in the US, I think the shifts that are happening in demographics, we can't deny these things. Like We are changing in so many ways, not just in our thought, but just in the people around us. And so at a certain point, we won't have a choice. We might as well start now, but we also have a huge financial benefit To making these changes. And of course, on top of all of that, along the way, we can also make such a big difference in people's lives through simple shifts like inviting somebody, giving them a seat at the table. And if you are in a place of power, it's often not a hard decision to make that. It's much harder to ask for it when you're not in that position, but to offer it can really be a life-changing thing for both of you, for all of you, everyone involved. And the ripple effects of all of this are are massive, and thank you so much for exploring it with me today, Lauren. This is a very complex topic. I'm sure it took so much to figure out how to approach it, like you were saying, not as an essay, but as a comprehensive book that's actually going to make a difference in people's lives. So for those that are listening and eager for more who know a Steve in their life, or even a Marcus, <laughs> hopefully, do you want to see more Marcus or help them? feel recognized, please get a copy of this book. I will link to it in two places for you. One is in the description right there on your podcast player. Open it up, click see more if you need to, and there'll be links to that so you can go find it right away. There's also a link there to my website, wellevator.com, which has a full blog post based on this episode with links to everything, including other books that we mentioned, movies. We talked about a few of them, Whatever else was discussed in this conversation will be linked there throughout the blog post and at the resource section at the bottom, along with another link to Lauren's book. So I hope that the listeners enjoyed it and I've certainly enjoyed learning from you, Lauren, hearing from you. And it's brightened my day. So thank you so much for being here.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's been great. I've the end of my day here. It's been raining and it's dark. So it's, you know, it's a really bright end to my day having this
0: conversation with you. Thank you very much. That's wonderful. I'm glad we could bring each other some literal and metaphorical sunshine. (laughs)